Welcome to the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine's Research Learning Series podcast, which focuses on helping you become a star research scholar. I'm Mary Haas, a medical education fellow at the University of Michigan and part of the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine team. Meet my husband and fellow ER doc, Nate Haas. And I'm Nate. I'm also an emergency physician at the University of Michigan, where my research interests include the ED-ICU interface and topics like DKA and cardiac arrest. I'm bringing the education background. And I'm bringing the research background. Today on the RLS podcast, we're going to be talking about a critical topic for every budding researcher. We all know the best research comes from people who are passionate about the things they are studying. But how do you, A, figure out what you're interested in, and B, turn that into research? If you've ever pondered these two questions before, then you're in luck, because today we will be chatting with prolific researcher Dr. Zach Mizell about how to turn your interest into research. Zach, thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, Can you first just tell us a little bit about yourself and the type of work that you do? Sure, and thank you for having me on. I live in Philadelphia. I'm from Boston originally. I am a full Philadelphia transplant and much to the chagrin of my extended family in Boston. I'm now an Eagles fan. I do research um, around a couple areas. I work at the University of Pennsylvania and much of my work is focused on communication and knowledge translation. I'm particularly interested in how evidence and evidence-based care or policies can be translated into best practices or sound policies. I really focus on four main audience types in thinking about communication and translation research, and they are broadly defined as patients, providers, which include doctors, but also nurses and advanced practice providers, and policymakers who we define as decision makers in public and private sector leadership areas, and then finally lay audiences. I've been focusing on areas where large gaps remain between evidence and adoption, in particular that has led to research recently focused on the treatment and prevention of opioid use disorder, as well as the delivery of low value care. I do a fair amount of work also around quality and safety research, and I also focus in that space around knowledge translation. A lot of my work is focused on methods, and I'm particularly interested in stories and narratives as a way to improve the use of evidence. The stories that we use in our research are really persuasive and real narratives. Our goal is to bring evidence to life for different types of audiences. And it's all about adding context. We all know that stories can be powerful, but how can they help close the gaps between evidence and practice that really hadn't been studied much? And what types of evidence are both good and bad for the use of narrative translation? What types of stories can or should not be used when you're talking about research? And we've been recently testing these approaches in all sorts of empirical ways. Most recently, I've been running a CORI, Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute-funded trial, where we're testing communication strategies for patients around acute pain in the ER. And we're trying to sort of think about how we can thread that needle between appropriate pain control and subjecting patients to the risk of long-term opioid use or opioid use disorder 
And we're comparing probabilistic individual risk communication strategies. So those traditional ways of explaining probabilities and risk to patients. And we do so with visual pictographs. That's one of the arms, but we're also comparing that to that strategy plus narrative strategy where we're incorporating real stories with real patients who've had lived experiences around pain and opioid use. And we're looking to see what their outcomes are and how they understand and perceive their risk as well as also of different types of functional and perceived outcomes. We've also done some work around how stories work for doctors, in particular emergency medicine physicians. We had a HRQ-funded study a few years ago where we randomized every member of the American College of Emergency Physicians, whether they knew it or not, to getting different messages based in their daily newsletter related to the opioid prescribing guidelines that were released by ASIP. We compared story-based guideline information to more traditional guideline information, and we found that ASIP members who received the newsletters that had the guidelines embedded in stories were about three times more likely to get engaged with the guideline either by opening it up or by going to a website designed to help them fulfill the recommendations of the guideline. So that's the main work that I've been up to. I the last thing that I do, and it relates to all of this, is that I direct a center here at Penn that's funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse that's focused specifically on dissemination and translation and policy related to the health economics of substance use disorder. And we really focus not only on translating evidence, but thinking about what are the ways that we can actually help researchers design their research, particularly in this sort of complicated space of health economics and substance use disorder, in a way that will actually lead to better use of that research, whether it's by policymakers or by other researchers or by practitioners. That's a really important topic, Zach, that you're researching, and obviously a really hot topic, one that affects our patients on a daily basis and affects our practice on a daily basis. What made you passionate about that topic, and how did you realize it was the area you really wanted to focus on? Yeah, I've always been interested in how we share experiences to make it meaningful. I was a history major in college and was and still am a journalism junkie. I read every magazine and newspaper, sometimes to the detriment of my academic work, but mostly it's useful. And I had done some newspaper writing in high school and college. As it became clear to me that there were these big gaps between evidence and how people understand evidence, I started to think maybe this interest, passion, distraction, whatever you call it, of mine was something that we could use to help bridge some of these gaps. We're all struck by how challenging bad stories can be for science or for healthcare delivery or medicine. And when I say bad stories, that's probably not fair because stories for people are how they understand and make sense of the world. And many people have had lived experiences or know somebody who've had lived experiences that are really meaningful to them, but they might go against or undermine the best available evidence that's out there. As doctors and as researchers, we tend to deal with this problem by either ignoring it or dismissing it or even trying to challenge it with just facts and figures alone. Sometimes we're set up to do this where media might have a point-counterpoint example on TV where they'll have a physician or a physician scientist going head-to-head with somebody who's got a story and the physician scientist has facts and figures only and the person with the story is often more compelling and has, frankly, a better message, whether it's grounded in reality or not, than the person who brings only facts and figures alone. So my passion became about 
about trying to find and think about, well, can we flip this paradigm on its head and say, let's find the stories that potentially match the evidence and can we figure out how to use them and test them in a way that improves the use of science and evidence. The other piece is that I had this passion, but I also took advantage of an opportunity to put it to use, and that really was relatively serendipitous. A grant opportunity came along that allowed me to put this strategy to a test earlier in my career, and I'm not sure I would have necessarily pursued this passion from a scientific perspective if it didn't so naturally fit into this grant opportunity. And then once it was funded, it became what I did and what I was interested in. It's really interesting to hear how one opportunity leads to the next and, and the stepping stones get you to where you are now. And I think it's encouraging for people like us early in our career to hear how those stepping stones add up together to the journey that you're on. And so specifically, what sort of advice do you have for folks like Mary and I that are early in our careers that are still trying to work out and figure out the specific areas or passions that we want to focus our efforts? I've always been slightly envious of people who have known from the time that they were a toddler that they cared about only one thing and this was their passion and every pore in their body, you know, breathed and oozed this one passion that allowed them to be so goal-directed in their approach to whatever it was, including research. And I'm definitely not that person. I think passion's a funny thing. It can come out of nowhere or be with you your entire life. I'm relatively agnostic when it comes to research passions, given the right cocktail of ideas combined with the right colleagues and the right collaborators and the right infrastructure or environment, then those passions that may be latent can bubble up and can emerge even without you really being necessarily aware of it from the beginning. There are some key elements into facilitating that bubbling up, and that is being curious and caring about the right things, whether it's public health or treating illness or delivering quality care or preventing uh, medical errors or or whatever it is. But if you care about things and you're curious, and then you put yourself in a place where the right recipe or combination of all those other elements are there, then it can lead to those passions either emerging, or if you've got those passions to start with, they can lead to you being able to take advantage of them and put them to work in a way that allows you to be a successful researcher. Zach, you're so right. My aunt always used to say, be prepared for adventure. And I think finding your passion is often an adventure. If you're too stuck in what you think you might be interested in, you may close yourself off to other opportunities. And a lot of times you just never know what you're going to stumble upon. So I think you make a good point in being open to the opportunities that come to you and discovering passion through those. What is your general philosophy and approach to then converting that passion into publications? There are two high-level approaches to thinking about that process. And it's maybe an oversimplification, but I want to talk about the going deep approach and the going wide approach. And they're not exclusive. In fact, for me, I tried to do a little bit of both, but they are different ways of thinking about how to convert an interest or a passion into a research portfolio or publications and grants. Deep is a methods approach. So you find an approach to answering research questions that either has been developed in a different domain or is a new way of thinking about answering questions that can be applied to lots of different, more specific research questions. For example, for me, that really has been about the use of narratives as a way to help translate and communicate 
evidence. There's millions different kind of evidence and there's many, many different opportunities to think about where you could test this type of method or strategy for many different types of audiences. So I really have focused on thinking about, let me hone this skill and become an expert in this approach. And then I can actually collaborate with researchers from a variety of different domains who are asking different questions, but may be interested in working with me to test this approach. So in this deep approach, you take on a topic and tackle it with your toolkit that you've developed or created some expertise around. And then the wide approach is really where you think about an area or a topic that you care about and you ask questions that deal with the entire spectrum of this problem, whether it's around building a conceptual model on how this problem translates into a public health issue or whether it's about translating evidence into action or about identifying the mechanisms of the disease and testing in a comparative way different approaches. That's a more traditional model, the wide model, where somebody has a particular interest in a disease or a condition and they've developed a research portfolio that approaches lots of different questions around that specific problem. You can do both. I think that there's probably advantages into both having a tool that you can test in a variety of strategies and a variety of conditions, but also recognizing that there may be some areas where you can really claim some expertise and focus on specific disease entity or public health problem. Tell us a little bit about your experience and how it led you to conceptualizing the research that you do in this way. So as I said, my experience has really been taking sort of this deep and wide pathway. My interest in narrative approaches to behavior change, it wasn't really about saying, I want to become a master in this domain and I'm going to figure out how to study it. It was rather, I had this interest in health services research. In fact, I started out as a more conventional health services researcher with research projects that were focused on pre-hospital and EMS safety and quality. And it kind of morphed into narrative science when I had this experience where I wrote a paper that was published in pre-hospital emergency care and was focused on patient safety. It was a think piece around patient safety in pre-hospital care. And I also had an opportunity to write about some of the same ideas for lay audiences and wrote an article that was published on the online journal Slate.com. And I found that I got a lot more attention, not just from lay audiences, but from some of my my researcher colleagues and from some of my medical director colleagues in pre-hospital care from the lay-oriented article than I did from the more scholarly article. And that sort of led me to think that perhaps this is an underexplored area for, for what it's worth, that lay-oriented article incorporated the use of storytelling in the article, but it combined stories with evidence. That really led to me wanting to understand more. We, as researchers, sometimes get so focused on publishing in relatively narrow outlets, whether it's a journal that's focused on a specific condition or focused on a specific type of healthcare delivery like pre-hospital care, then we potentially are shutting off not only avenues to spreading the science to people outside of our domain, but we may actually be
be not even doing a very good job translating our own work or other important work to our own colleagues, because many of us are probably just as much or more likely to read Slate than we are to read the Journal of Pre-Hospital Emergency Care. No offense to that journal, and it's a great journal, and the editor's there, et cetera, but that's the way of the world. So that happened. And at the same time, I had an opportunity to partner with a colleague here at Penn and write a perspective piece that ended up being published in JAMA focused on how evidence-based narratives can be used to challenge non-evidence-based narratives. And this was in response to the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendations on prostate cancer screening. So if you recall, the uh, United States Preventive Services Task Force released some recommendations a while ago now, maybe five or six years ago, basically recommending that PSA screening not be used to identify prostate cancer in patients who are asymptomatic or were low risk. But their recommendations were devoid of any type of context or narrative. At least that's how it was publicized. A government group recommends end of screening, basically. And the problem was we had celebrities like Rudy Giuliani and Joe Torre, manager for the New York Yankees, at the same time that day when those recommendations came out, going on TV, telling these stories that were very personal and were moving in some ways, even though they weren't really grounded in the science, they were much more effective and they ran directly counter to the USPTF recommendations. They said, PSA screening saved my life. Of course, we don't know if it did or didn't, but that was sort of beside the point. So we wrote this article in JAMA that was about finding the use of narratives that could help counter some of these public narratives that are non-evidence-based. I was able to plant a stake around this space of evidence-based narratives that hadn't really been explored in a lot of other scientific or even lay forum. Because of that, even though I had not done any research in that space yet, when I went to write a grant around there, I could at least cite that piece and there was nothing else out there. And it allowed me to say, this is my area. And I, even though I haven't developed a research portfolio in this space yet, this is what I want to do and nobody else is doing it. So give me a shot at studying it empirically. That is one takeaway. We talk a lot about career development awards and building a research portfolio and area of expertise through these sort of very traditional ways where you propose to do an incremental approach to a field of science that has already been established and you find mentors that are recognized as the experts in that field and you propose to become an expert and to be able to ask some of these research questions that can help advance the field forward. And those are very important strategies to becoming a research expert. And I did that and I have no qualms about it. But you can also push the boundaries of those steps by planting a flag and staking out an area that may be new, even through the process of doing something like writing a think piece or a perspective piece before you jump into the science and build a series of papers that establish you as a true expert in that area. Definitely makes sense. And this concept of storytelling and the power of narrative to really increase the impact of research is so critical. I think the traditional thought and traditional teaching is that good scientific writing is dry and factual and to the point. But when you think about impact, you really need that way to elicit emotion. And I think that's the power of storytelling. It creates a relationship between the reader 
and the author, and it also helps guide the reader toward a specific interpretation of the work. I want to ask you how you're testing whether or not this actually works. I know this is your interest, but how are you going about figuring out if this is actually a successful approach? We've been approaching some of these questions in a variety of different ways. I think I mentioned the approach that we took when we were interested in exploring if narrative translation is effective for improving the adoption and uptake of guidelines. And we ran this randomized control trial of ASAP members using a newsletter platform to test narratives versus more traditional guideline language. And in that study, we were unable to measure whether people truly followed the guidelines, but we were able to measure whether they looked at them, how long they looked at them, whether they opened them, whether they went to this website that we created to help them follow some of the recommendations of the guidelines. So that was a start, and that was one way that we approached this. And we are about three quarters of the way through a large multi-center randomized trial focused on testing whether stories are an effective way of translating opioid risk communication to patients in the ER with acute pain. And we don't know the results of that study, so we'll see. I will tell you that we've done a fair amount of ancillary work, both qualitative and mixed methods, where we've talked to a lot of potential stakeholders across a variety of different types of settings, including researchers, including policymakers, state and federal government legislators, as well as health system leaders, all around this idea of how they think about getting information, how they understand research, how they translate their own research or those of their colleagues, depending on who we're talking about. And we've learned a lot of different things. Many of them have this story-based perspective, but not all. And what we learned, first of all, that stories are the way that people use to understand almost everything, including scientists, and uh, even if they're different types of stories than a patient or somebody from the lay public, and that people naturally use narratives to explain or describe what they do or why they're making certain decisions all the time. But we don't do it necessarily in the context of our scholarship. That might be okay, but when it comes time to putting it to work, it becomes a challenge. We recently conducted a needs assessment focused on the people who are in best position to use health economic research related to opioid use disorder and substance use disorder. And what we found was that they said researchers, first of all, don't design their work in a way that is responsive to my or my organization's needs. So, for example, if we're talking about health economics, as somebody who does a population-based study looking at whether a intervention is cost-effective for an entire population, that's interesting, but that doesn't help me decide whether I can pay for it or should pay for it out of my department's budget. And the terminology that researchers use to translate their research is often not helpful for me as a end user. In health economics terms, they brought up this term quality adjusted life years or qualities. And many of our stakeholders said, don't use that term because it doesn't mean anything to me or my constituents. 
And what they did ask for over and over again were, give me the stories that I can put this to use. Even if you're bringing research to me that helps me understand more about the area, I still need to be able to sell it or explain it to my constituents. So give me the tools to be able to do that. So again, this gets back to stories. I do think researchers and scientists need to actually think about not only asking these questions in empiric ways, but what are the stories that can help bring it to life? And don't be afraid of the anecdote, because those anecdotes, if they're scientifically based, as long as they're being used to translate evidence, not to shape the evidence, then they're an important part of this entire research process. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Something that we like to ask everybody that's valuable to both Mary and I relates to mentorship. And it's interesting to hear everybody's stories of how key mentors helped get them to where they are. Do you have any specific mentors or examples of who helped you get to where you are right now? I've had so many mentors. I can tell you that I'm somebody that is a bit of a mentor seeker and still am. I'm constantly cultivating relationships that I hope will have some mentor-mentee aspect to it, even though I'm at a spot in my career where I'm also mentoring other people, I find it really valuable to find and cultivate mentors throughout your career. I was lucky to be at a place where when I started my research career, which was here at Penn, which is filled with great mentors, many of them came through not only the Department of Emergency Medicine, but through my fellowship training, which was here at Penn and was through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholars Program, which connected me to mentors and collaborators outside of EM. And that was really key. And I would recommend to anyone, even if you're not in a program like that, to seek and cultivate mentor type relationships with people outside of emergency medicine, as well as people within, because perspectives and experience of those people can be very valuable and it just really rounds out your portfolio. So I tell mentees and junior investigators that they should have more than two mentors if possible. A research mentor who is working with you closely on projects is key. A career or professional mentor is key. But then there's other types of mentors and who those people are and what type of mentorship they can deliver can vary and it can change within the person as well. There are people that I once leaned on from a mentorship perspective who helped guide me through a specific project and now they help me think about my career or my next steps in something that's wider and deeper than a specific project. So it's worth it to be thinking about mentorship all the time as a mentee. And it's worth it to be thinking about it as a mentor as well, because those are the relationships that's going to make your career one that is both successful and satisfying. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us and tell us your story and the lessons you've learned along the way. It's inspiring to us and it's encouraging for young researchers like us to hear about your path to success. We always like to leave our listeners with a few concrete learning points from the podcast. The take-home points from this episode are the following. Number one, focus is good, but so is being ready to pivot and take a windy road to research success. Number two, at the beginning of your career, say yes to everything. 
Number three, stay curious and read a lot, especially outside of your domain. Great projects come from combining ideas from other domains. Number four, mentor others early in your career if you can. Great papers and projects come from eager and smart students, residents, and fellows. But beware, if they don't have time or capacity to take on a project, it can become a time sink. But always err on the side of saying yes. And number five, get involved with organizations and committees, including the SAM Research Committee, which is a great opportunity to meet mentors and get involved in projects. Zach, thanks again. We really appreciate it. Any last thoughts or comments? It was a real pleasure to talk to you both, and I look forward to seeing your research careers in Blossom, which they already are. I would reiterate the take-home points and make a plug for the SM Research Committee, which is one of my babies. We are a big tent, and if you're interested at any stage in your career in research at all, an SAM member, come join our group. That's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening to the SAM Research Learning Series podcast. Subscribe to our Academic Life and Emergency Medicine podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes to catch the next episode. See you next time.